You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. Amen. Such a joy to observe more baptisms this morning. And there were several testimonies, both in the first service and the second, of people who, in one way or another, God saved as a result of all that we've been through over the past few years. And so as hard as those times were, we continue to hear about how God used them for good and how he used them to ripen a harvest to the gospel. And we believe that harvest is still very ripe and, and white. And uh, we look forward to more baptisms in the coming weeks, as Jacob mentioned. We're booking to the end of May now. So we'll skip a couple in, in early May, and then, and then we'll pick up in May. We're, we're thankful to the Lord. But please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, and we will look at verses 13 to 32 together of Luke 24. We've all heard the saying that life is full of surprises. We've all heard this saying, it's a popular saying because it's true, it is. Life is full of surprises, both good surprises and bad surprises. Life is unpredictable. We don't know what tomorrow will bring. God knows because he's sovereign over it, but we don't. It's a mystery. We welcome the good surprises in life, don't we? We like those surprises. Surprises like marriage proposals, positive pregnancy tests, job promotions, Or even a loved one that we've been praying for finally coming to Jesus Christ. We love those surprises and things like them. But it's the bad, the unexpected surprises in life that tend to bring with them the most amount of pain and despair and disillusionment and devastation. Oftentimes, the most painful experiences in life are a result of something unexpected happening. A phone call out of the blue letting you know about the sudden loss of a loved one. A medical diagnosis that you didn't see coming. A pink slip when you thought that everything was going well in the workplace. A child going wayward when you thought that they were walking steadfastly on the narrow road. A sudden bout of depression when life doesn't even seem all that bad. A crisis of faith in the middle of pursuing the Lord. We could go on. There are many unexpected surprises in life, aren't there? Infertility, miscarriages, relational conflicts, marital strife, betrayal, and the list goes on. We don't plan for these things. And these sort of unexpected, unplanned for, unwelcome surprises, they tend to be the most painful, don't they? They can lead to the deepest kind of sorrow and despair. Sometimes they'll even breed a a disillusionment that can rock us to the very core of our faith. And some of you have walked in here this morning, I know this, and this is exactly where you find yourself. On the road of sorrow, On the road of despair, on the road of disillusionment, maybe on the road of skepticism, maybe even on the road of hopelessness. And that last one is the worst kind of road that we can walk. I can't think of a worse state to be in than without hope. The Bible says 
in the Proverbs that hope deferred makes the heart sick. But what happens to the heart when hope is lost? What does the absence of hope do to the human heart? If you find yourself walking one of these roads this morning, if you find yourself confused and disillusioned with how God's plan is unfolding in your life, maybe life was going in one direction, maybe everything seemed to be going well, you had high hopes, and then all of a sudden, perhaps at no fault of your own, everything changed. And now you wonder why. And you can't see the big picture, and you can't understand how this can possibly be a part of God's plan. Maybe you even wonder in the middle of it all, Where is God? Where is God? If any of that describes you in some way, shape, or form, then this sermon is for you. Because this is exactly where the two followers of Jesus were as they were walking on the road to Emmaus in our text this morning. And if you're not walking a similar road this morning as these two travelers were, then I would submit that this sermon is still for you. Because you likely know someone who is. Or, sooner or later, one of those unexpected surprises in life will occur in your life. And so you can tuck this teaching away and bring it out when you need it. Life is full of surprises. But what we will learn from this beautiful, moving story this morning is that Jesus sees us when we walk the Emmaus Road. The road of despair or disillusionment or hopelessness or doubt. He sees his people and what does he do? He draws near to them in their time of need. And he graciously offers hope and counsel and strength to us through his word. And through intimate, close fellowship with him. We'll see that he cares for us deeply. And he'll even go out of his way to seek us out. And to give us that which we need most in our time of need. Which is namely Jesus himself. More than anything else, on the various Emmaus roads that we will walk in this life, what we need most, more than anything else, is Jesus Christ himself. Because he is our ultimate source of strength and comfort and peace and wisdom and faith in our times of need. And so let me read from Luke 24, beginning at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen visions of angels, a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, 
O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he, looked, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as the scriptures are open this morning, I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit to proclaim them faithfully. And as your scriptures go forth, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be warmed, that our hearts would burn within us for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, it's not very difficult to set the scene for you for our text this morning, seeing as Pastor Jacob just wrapped up a series in the book of Matthew, and we spent some time in the last chapter after the resurrection of Christ, and Easter Sunday was just last weekend. And so this story takes place on that first Easter Sunday. Jesus has just been crucified. The tomb has been found empty on the morning of the third day, but Jesus' body is missing, and at least in Luke, so far, he's nowhere to be found. You have to remember that the Passover was taking place at the same time, and so many would have gone into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And now that it's all ended, people are likely heading back to the villages and towns from which they came. So our story begins on a desert road that leads from the city of Jerusalem to this little town called Emmaus. Verse 13 says, that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And the two that are walking this road on this day are Cleopas, uh, which we find out later in verse 18, and an unnamed companion of his. And all we really know about them is that they're followers of Jesus Christ. They believed in Jesus. They believed he was the promised Messiah. Some traditions suggest that Cleopas is the same man talked about in John 19, verse 25, who there is named Clopas. This man is the uncle of Jesus. And if that was true, this might suggest that the other companion with Cleopas would be his wife, Mary. Others suggest this unnamed traveler is Luke himself, but the reality is we simply don't know for certain. And I would even say there's virtually no evidence to conclude that Cleopas and Clopas are the same person other than their names are sort of similar. But their names are notably spelt differently. And so we cannot say for sure. It would seem to me that these two travelers are simply ordinary followers of Jesus. They're ordinary nobodies. They weren't among the 12. They didn't belong to Jesus' family. They were two ordinary people, and I find that particularly encouraging. Here we have a story about two ordinary nobodies in a state of despair and confusion and we'll see even hopelessness, and yet a fresh encounter with Jesus Christ changes everything. 
I'm encouraged even by the fact that one of these travelers is seemingly so unimportant that he's not even named. And yet Jesus knows his name. Jesus cares deeply for him or for her in the state of their misery. And in the same way that he sees and he knows and he cares for them, so also he sees and he knows and he cares for you. No matter how insignificant or ordinary or like a nobody you may feel. If you were to read the Gospel of Luke, you'd see that it tends to focus on the human condition. And I believe maybe that's why this post-resurrection story is only found in Luke's Gospel, because it tends to focus on the human condition as well. And so we're going to divide this story into three main parts as we look at it together. Number one, a conversation that reveals despair and exposes unbelief. Number two, a Bible study that informs minds and warms hearts. And number three, a meal that opens eyes and changes lives. And so it's very simple. We have a conversation, then a Bible study, then a meal. And so let's begin with the first thing, a conversation. Number one, a conversation that reveals despair and exposes unbelief. We'll pick up the story now in verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So you have Cleopas and his friend on the road to Emmaus. It says that they're talking about all that they had just witnessed, all that had just happened. And the word for talking here connotes an intense discussion or even a debate. So this was a heated, intense discussion, very emotional. They're verbally processing with each other all that they had just witnessed and heard about. And they're dealing with the sadness and the pain that has come with it. And I like this little side note from Matthew Henry in his commentary on this passage. He has such a way of pulling out these little details and observations in the text. He says this, Good company and good converse are an excellent antidote against prevailing melancholy. When Christ's disciples were sad, they did not each one get by himself, but continued as he sent them out, two by two. For two are better than one, especially in times of sorrow. Giving vent to the grief may perhaps give ease to the grieved, and by talking it over, we may talk ourselves or our friends may talk us into a better frame. In other words, when we're going through seasons of sorrow or disillusionment or depression, it's important that we not do it alone. It's important that we find a Christian brother or sister and pour our hearts out to them. Talk about what's going on in our lives. Unearth the depths of our hearts. I've found over and over again in pastoral ministry that sometimes all someone needs is just a person to listen. If you ask them questions and you allow them to talk through the situation, so much healing happens just in that very act. Whereas when someone bottles it all up and they keep it all to themselves, what happens? Well, the, sto the sorrow just tends to get worse and worse, and sometimes the situation can spiral out of control. And so let's continue verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now, as you think about how difficult it is sometimes to walk in a season of darkness, can you think of any more encouraging words than the words Jesus himself drew near? Isn't that what we want? 
There's so much hope packed into those four words, and in them we see the kindness of our Savior. These two travelers are likely among many on this road to Emmaus after a busy Passover weekend, an eventful weekend. Two ordinary people among many, and yet Jesus draws near to them in the midst of the busyness, and he does so intentionally. We'll see that he asks them questions to draw out their hearts, but he already knows the state they're in, doesn't he? He knew the despair. He knew the hopelessness that they were dealing with. So what does he do? He draws near. He takes note of their sadness, and he draws near to them. He goes right to them in the midst of it. But sometimes, especially in the midst of depression or disillusionment, our Lord draws near to us, and yet we're completely unaware because we're so stuck in the depths. Which brings us to verse 16. Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. They didn't recognize Jesus. And we don't exactly know why. Perhaps the, the countenance or the look on his face had changed post-resurrection from what it was like in the events leading up to the crucifixion. Maybe their own sorrow and despair kept them from seeing clearly. Or maybe the possibility of resurrection was just so far out of their minds that even if Jesus looked exactly the same way he did just a few days ago, they still couldn't see that it was him because they lacked faith. And certainly there's something sovereign going on here as well. It says that their eyes were kept. And so this is a passive verb that would suggest that they are the object of the verb and God is the likely subject. God is the one ultimately keeping them from recognizing their Lord. And yet they're still responsible for their unbelief. And so Jesus joins them on the road in the middle of this intense conversation about all that's taken place, and they don't recognize him. Verse 17, and Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? Now, of course, Jesus knows the answer to that question, right? He's all-knowing. But he asks them in order to draw out their hearts and to reveal the state of their souls. Because look at how they immediately respond. It says, and they stood still, looking sad. So his question stops them right in their tracks, and it reveals their sadness and their sorrow. You can just picture it. They're walking along this dusty road, and Jesus comes up to them, and he asks a very simple question. And that was enough to stop them, cause them to look over at Jesus, perhaps with dejected faces and with tears in their eyes. And sometimes people are sad and depressed, but they're able to put on a mask, right? They don't want anyone to know. No one knows what's really going on in the depths of their hearts. They can smile on Sundays and make it seem like they have everything together. But not these two. Their sadness and depression is so deep that they're wearing it on their faces. It's unmistakable. Let's continue. Verse 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Now here we have some comic relief, okay? There's a hilarious irony to that ridiculous question from Cleopas. Okay? Not only because little do they know the very person they're talking about is standing right in front of them and asking them that question, but also because, as we'll see, it is actually they who do not know the full extent of the things that have taken place in the last few days. 
And this question strikes me as rather rude, right? It's sarcastic. If they knew who it is they were talking to, there's no way they would have asked this question. But Jesus, instead of immediately rebuking them for asking such a ridiculous and ignorant question, what does he do? He continues to draw out their hearts. He's so kind and he's so gracious, gracious to these two nobodies in this text. He's as the Bible commands us to be. He's slow to speak and he's quick to listen. And so he simply asks them in verse 19. And he said to them, what things? What things? And now the state of their souls will further be revealed in verses 19 to 24. And here we have in these verses what one commentator said is the gospel according to Cleopas. He recounts, they recount all the events of the last few days that they've been so intensely discussing together. And so I'll read those verses again, verses 19 to 24. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty, a prophet mighty indeed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. Now, I've read that over and over and over again, and I can't find anything wrong in that recounting of all that's happened. Like these are gospel facts and everything is right there. Jesus is a prophet with supernatural power and authoritative preaching. He was condemned to death and crucified on a cross. He is the redeemer of his people. They even speak about an empty tomb and the report of the angels that he's alive. They even mention the third day in verse 21. And remember, Jesus had previously said that he would die and on the third day he would be raised. But they still don't get it. They're so depressed and they're so filled with hopelessness that even good news is now bad news for them. Their depression colors everything. Maybe you've been there before. They cannot see what is directly in front of them, and they cannot draw the most obvious conclusions from the facts that they've been presented with. In other words, their minds, they're just not working properly. They don't even consider it a possibility that Jesus rose again. And so in the midst of their misery and their pessimism, they just conclude his body must be missing. They don't believe the reports of the witnesses and the angels. And this is what hopelessness does to a person. It completely skews the way they see and interpret everything, including what should be plain and obvious to them, such that even good news now becomes bad news, and they can't see the good in anything. I want to focus, though, on what they say in verse 21. They say, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And now this is why I've intentionally used the word hopelessness to describe their current state of mind. Okay, their hopes had been dashed. Notice that hope is in the past tense there. They had hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. But when Jesus died, so did their hope. 
They didn't understand, as Jesus will say, that the crucifixion was necessary. They didn't understand that Jesus came to die, that this was all a part of God's plan. They probably thought, like so many other Jews, that the Messiah was going to come, Jesus was going to come, and he was going to conquer the Romans, not be crucified by them. He was going to put Israel back on the map as a nation state. He was going to conquer all of Israel's enemies and bring in the kingdom of God by force and by power. But when Jesus was crucified then, their hopes were completely shattered. Now they're bewildered. And I would imagine they're probably even going through an identity crisis, right? We thought Jesus was going to deliver and redeem us. We gave up everything to follow him. We oriented our entire life around him. But now he's not who we thought he was. And so what do we do now? Where do we go from here? They had built their entire lives around Jesus Christ, and now it was all crashing down because of the crucifixion. And so they're in this dark fog on the road to Emmaus. But here's the beauty of this story. Even though they don't see it, there is hope, isn't there? It's staring them right in the face. There is light at the end of the tunnel because Jesus is right there with them in the midst of their misery. He's right there with them in the midst of their disillusionment. He's right there with them in the midst of their sorrow. Even though they cannot see him, he's right there. He's walking beside them on the Emmaus Road. But now he's done listening. He's done listening. He's, he's been quick to listen, but now it's time to speak. And somewhat surprisingly, when you think about someone in such a hope, hopeless place, Jesus begins with a strong rebuke. Look at what it says in verses 25 and 26. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He's drawn out their hearts. He's exposed their unbelief. And so now what does he do? He rebukes them. Sometimes Jesus draws near to us in our sorrow to offer us a firm rebuke. Because sometimes our sorrow and our misery is actually a result of our own sin. And so the most loving thing that someone can do for us when that is the case is to draw near to us and to rebuke us for our sin, to expose our sin and to call us to repent. To repent of that which is leading to all the pain and misery we're experiencing. So if someone does that in your life, be thankful. They're being like Jesus. This is certainly the case with these two on the Emmaus Road. And we see that their sin was unbelief. Their sin is unbelief. But notice that Jesus doesn't rebuke them for failing to believe the witnesses to the resurrection or failing to believe the angels at the tomb. He rebukes them for failing to believe the prophets. It's kind of fascinating. He rebukes them for failing to believe the scriptures. They failed to properly understand Old Testament theology and prophecy and how it all pointed to Jesus Christ and to the events of the last few days in particular. Because had they understood the prophets, then they would have known it was necessary that Christ should die and be crucified and then enter into his glory. God's plan hadn't been thwarted. This was God's plan. And so we see here that the primary reason for their hopelessness is actually an inadequate understanding of Scripture. And I would suggest that this is always the case. 
The true Christian may find themselves sorrowful or depressed or confused or miserable even at times. But the true Christian, if they properly understand the word of God and all of its gospel promises, the true Christian is never without hope. In fact, the Bible says on a few occasions that one of the things that separates a Christian from unbelievers is the fact that we have hope. 1 Thessalonians 4 says we do not grieve as those who have no hope. 1 Peter 3 says that we ought to be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that we have within us because they don't. The true Christian, if they understand the word of God and all of its gospel promises, is never without hope. We always have the hope of the resurrection and the hope of the glory that's to come. And so hopelessness ought never to characterize those who are truly in Christ. We can go through the pit of despair, but we ought not to lose hope. The final thing that I'll note before moving on to the next section is that Jesus calls them foolish ones. Perhaps this is surprising to some of us. He calls them foolish ones for their unbelief in the gospel. Just as unbelief in the existence of God is foolish, according to Psalm 14.1, so also is unbelief in the death and resurrection of Christ. How is it that these two people could have seen and heard all that they did and yet they don't believe? What they've seen and heard really should not lead to the absence of hope. It should increase it. And yet here they are without hope. They know the gospel message. They've experienced some of the events. They can recount it eloquently, and yet they do not believe. And the reality is some of you this morning have walked into this room in a state of similar foolishness. How is it that some of you can come to church week in and week out and you still don't believe? How is it that some of you can come shoulder to shoulder with Jesus, so to speak, through his people, through the preaching of his word, through hearing the testimonies of changed lives in the waters of baptism, through seeing answered prayers in the community of faith, and yet you still don't believe. Your hearts are still slow to believe. You're just like these two on the Emmaus Road. My prayer is that God would give you the eyes and the hearts to believe even this morning. Like we're going to see that he is about to do with these two travelers on the Emmaus Road. May he give you eyes to see and hearts to believe. Secondly, we move on from this conversation. Jesus is done listening. Number two, we see a Bible study that informs minds and warms hearts. A Bible study that informs minds and warms hearts. So Jesus, he's given his thesis in verses 25 and 26 that all that happened had been proclaimed about by the prophets. It was necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And now he's going to prove his thesis. Verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Okay, the conversation is now over, and it's time for a Bible study. And even though he proves his thesis, unfortunately, we don't know what he said. Wouldn't it have been amazing to have been with those two companions on the Emmaus Road and heard Jesus open up the Old Testament scriptures? The word for interpret here is the word from which we get the word hermeneutics. And so this refers to proper biblical interpretation. 
This would have been a far better Old Testament hermeneutics class than you could ever attend in a seminary. Okay, there was, there was never a better hermeneutics class and never a better seminary professor than Jesus himself. To have, to have been a part of it, how awesome would that have been? Or at least to have known what Jesus said. But evidently the Holy Spirit did not decide it necessary to record these things. It does tell us that he began with Moses, so this means he began with the first five books of the Bible, the books written by Moses. And then he proceeded to interpret to them in all the scriptures. So he walked through the entire Old Testament. And we don't know what he said, but I think it's kind of fun to imagine what he might have said and where he might have gone. I assume he would have began in Genesis, as it says, and certainly he would have touched on Genesis 3.15. He would have explained how, his death and how through his death and resurrection, he indeed crushed the head of the serpent. It was prophesied about as early as the Garden of Eden. And surely he would have turned to Genesis 22, the story of Abraham and Isaac on Mount Moriah, and explained that he is the lamb whom God provided for a burnt offering that Abraham spoke of. He is the son that the father must sacrifice. I assume he would have gone to the Passover narrative in Exodus 12 and explained that he is the Passover lamb. He's the one whose blood was shed to take away the sins of the world and to save his people from death. He would have gone to Exodus 16, perhaps, and explained that he is the manna from heaven, the bread of life, whose body was broken for us, for our provision. Certainly, he would have turned to Exodus 20, the giving of the law at Sinai that we're going through on Sundays. And explained how it all points to Jesus, the only one who could fulfill the requirements of the law in his life, in his life and pay for the penalties of the law in his death. Perhaps he would have turned to Numbers 21 and said, he's the serpent on the pole in the wilderness, such that when you look at him, you will not die, but you will live. And through his wounds, you will be healed. Maybe he would have explained how he is the tabernacle and the temple, the presence of God with his people, and though the temple of his body was destroyed, it was raised on the third day. He must have walked through all the feasts and the sacrifices in Leviticus and demonstrated how they all pointed to and are fulfilled in him. He's the once and for all sacrifice to which they looked forward to. Maybe he went to Psalm 22 verse 1 and explained how ultimately it was him who was forsaken of God and crushed underneath his wrath. Maybe he went to Psalm 110 verse 1 and explained that he is the mysterious Lord in that passage, David's Lord, the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And certainly he went at some point to Isaiah 53. I like to think it all built up to Isaiah 53. And he demonstrated that he is the suffering servant of which the scriptures speak. He's the one who bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He's the one who was smitten by God and afflicted. He's the one who was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And he's the one whom the Lord laid all our iniquity on. These events had been talked about for hundreds, thousands of years. The whole Old Testament is about Jesus Christ. It all points to his person and to his work. All the Old Testament prophecies and shadows and types and promises find their yes in Jesus, the Bible says. We believe there's a unifying story that runs through the entire Bible. Some call this a meta-narrative. 
It's a story that all the other stories are a part of such that the whole Bible, though yes, it's composed of 66 books, it's really just one unified story. The story of Jesus Christ and the redemption of his people. And as he opened the scriptures there on the Emmaus Road, what happened to the hearts of Cleopas and his friend? Well, they began to beat faster and faster within them. The coldness began to warm again, such that later they would put it this way, did not our hearts burn within us? Were they not hot for the Lord when he opened to us the scriptures? And this is the power of the word of God. This is what good preaching does. It's able to cut to the heart. It's able to give life where there is death. It's able to bring warmth where there is coldness. This is the power of the word of God. Now, I wonder if the reason that their eyes were initially kept from recognizing Jesus, we don't know, but I wonder if it's so that Jesus could first prove the necessity of his death and resurrection to them from the word, so that their faith would not rest in some experience, but their faith would first and foremost rest in the scriptures. It was the word of God that caused their hearts to burn within them. It was the scriptures that warmed their hearts to the gospel. And so at the end of the day, they were saved one way or another. But this way, they got to have this amazing Bible lesson with Jesus. I would have chosen that way. They were blessed. A couple of points of application here before moving on. First, how does Jesus minister to these people in the midst of their deep grief and confusion? What does he do? Well, he goes right to the scriptures. He even rebukes them with the scriptures because they need it. It's in the scriptures where they'll find the truth that they need. It's the scriptures that will minister to them in the depths of their situation. What they needed most in the midst of their miserable state was to hear from God. They didn't need man's opinion. They didn't need some emotional experience in a worship service. They needed the truth of God's word. God's word has something to say to you in the midst of your depression or sorrow or confusion or unbelief. And so... My encouragement to you is to just get in the word, cling to the word, feast upon the word until somehow your heart is warmed again. That's where the answers lie. And secondly, as you search the scriptures, make sure you look for Jesus in them. Ultimately, Bible study is not about acquiring more knowledge and information so that maybe we can impress someone with how much we know. It's not about that at all. It should not merely be an academic or intellectual exercise. It's not about getting a check mark so that we can tell our small group that, yes, we were in God's word seven days this past week and get a pat on the back. We go to the scriptures to meet with Jesus. We want to know him more. We want more of him in our lives. Listen to what Matthew Henry said about this. He says, see how Christ by his spirit and grace makes himself known to the souls of his people. He opens the scriptures to them, for they are they that testify of him to those who search them and who search for him in them. Do you search for Jesus in the scriptures? Do you read the scriptures ultimately because you want to meet with Jesus? You want to spend time with Jesus? This is what it's all about. And so we've had a conversation, we've had a Bible study, and finally we see number three, a meal. A meal that opens eyes and changes lives. And so I'll read verses 28 and 29 again. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if they were going farther. Uh, he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. So after their Bible study concludes, and I like to imagine that like time froze, right? And the next thing you know, they're there at, the, at their destination of Emmaus, and Jesus begins to walk on a little farther. But it says they strongly urge him to stay with them, and he does. And there's no indication that Jesus is acting here or pretending. So we assume he likely would have continued on had they not urged him to stay. But thankfully, by God's grace, they sought more of his presence. Because once you get a little bit of Jesus, you want more. You want more. And we know and we've heard time and time again in this church that Jesus likes to be sought. He promises that as you seek him, you will find him as these two are about to find out. So if you're here this morning and you haven't yet found Jesus, don't stop seeking him. Keep reading the word. Keep coming to church. Keep seeking him in his presence. And if you seek him, the Bible promises you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. And so with that said, let's look at what happens to these two companions Verse 30, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? It's in the intimacy of table fellowship with Jesus, this close seen with Jesus, that their eyes are opened. And now some have suggested that what they took part in here was communion, that Jesus observed communion with them, but I don't believe there's really any reason to say that. It does say they broke bread, but this is just idiomatic of sharing a meal together. There's no talk of wine, and it would have been very strange for Jesus to have begun a communion service only to vanish and leave it unfinished. And so I don't think that's what's going on here. It's just an ordinary meal, an ordinary moment of life. And these two friends are forever changed. And we don't know what caused their eyes to see, their, the scales to be removed from their eyes. Obviously, God was sovereign, but we don't know what he used. Maybe they saw the nail-pierced hands when Jesus broke the bread. Maybe they recognized a supernatural closeness to the Father when he prayed for the food. Maybe it was just the closeness of this fellowship with Jesus in this moment. But whatever it is, the scales are removed from their eyes. And for the first time, they recognize this man who sought them out on the Emmaus Road. They recognize this man who cared enough to draw near to them in their miserable state. They recognize this man who thoughtfully asked them questions and listened to them in their confusion. They recognize this man who offered them a strong rebuke when they needed it. They recognize this masterful Bible teacher for the very first time. He was none other than Jesus himself. Indeed, Jesus was alive, is alive. And then in that moment, he vanishes. His work is done. And then their immediate response was to recall how their hearts had burned within them as he opened the scriptures. They're, they can't get that, that Bible lesson out of their minds. And that concludes this beautiful, moving story that speaks to the patience and the grace and the tenderness of our Lord Jesus. 
And so a few points of application to end this sermon this morning. First, and this is a minor point, but I think it's worth noting, I find it fascinating how often in Scripture people have illuminating encounters with Jesus Christ on the side of a road. Cleopas and his friend meet Jesus on the road to Emmaus, here in this text. Paul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. The Ethiopian eunuch comes to know Jesus on the road to Gaza. Apparently, people can encounter the living God on the streets. And so some of you know where I'm going with this. Okay, we have a street outreach ministry, a street evangelism ministry at our church, and it's starting up again this weekend. Every weekend, we send a team of believers out to share the gospel on the streets. Why? Because we pray that people will encounter the living God on the streets like these two people did on the road to Emmaus. And we believe that it can happen because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so would you consider being a part of this ministry? Maybe circle one weekend a month and commit to going out over the summer and sharing the gospel on the streets. Second, I want you to consider the example of Jesus and how he spiritually cares for the souls of these two people. Because there's a pattern here. It's, it's instructive for us. This is how he cares for their souls. This is his counseling strategy. First, he draws near to them in their distress. Secondly, he asks questions and carefully listens to their answers. Three, he opens the word of God with them and speaks directly to their issues, even calling out sin when necessary. And fourth, above all else, he offers them himself. And so this is a good blueprint for us to follow as God allows us to minister to one another within the body of Christ. We ought to seek to meet people in the midst of their needs, draw near to them in their distress, in their heartache. Ask questions and be quick to listen to and slow to speak. And then once, when the time is right, take them to the scriptures. Open the word of God with them. And ultimately, why are you doing that? You're doing that to take them to Jesus. Because there's no power in you to change their heart. The power lies in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus Christ. More than anything else, what we want people to have is a fresh encounter with Jesus. They need Jesus to come to them and minister to their souls. And how does he do this? He does this through the word and through prayer. And so we make use of those means. And finally, I mentioned at the outset of this sermon that life is full of surprises, both good and bad. And some surprises bring the greatest joy, but others can bring the deepest sorrow. But really, when you think about it, this story has both kinds of surprises, doesn't it? At the outset, there's this unexpected surprise that leads to deep sadness and disillusionment and even hopelessness. Jesus Christ has been crucified. They did not expect this. And this leads them in a state of despair. Their lives are rocked to the very core. This is one of those unexpected surprises in life that causes deep pain and sadness. But then they were met with another kind of surprise, weren't they? The resurrected Jesus drew near to them. He met with them. He opened their eyes and everything changed. And their hopelessness was met with resurrection hope. Surprise, Jesus is alive and he's been with you this whole time. And so Christian, if you're proverbially walking on a similar road as Cleopas and his friend were this morning, whatever it may be, maybe it's the road of depression or the road of disillusionment or the road of doubt or the road of despair, the road of skepticism, the road of anxiety, whatever it is, don't lose hope. 
Know that the resurrected Christ, he's walking with you. He's right beside you, even if you cannot see it, even if it does not feel like it. He is working. He's with you on the Emmaus road. You need to believe it. He's such a kind and gracious and patient Savior. So keep searching his scriptures. Keep clinging to his promises. Keep seeking him and his presence. And don't give up. And trust that he's working all things out together for your good. And in going through this process, he is teaching you things that you did not know and you would not have known otherwise. And he's going to minister his word to you such that your hearts will be warmed again as you seek his word. Your faith in him will grow and your love for him will increase. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our hearts are full of gratitude for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is so kind and so gracious and so patient with his people. And Lord, having read and having heard your scriptures, I pray that no one would leave here today without their hearts having been warmed to the things of God, to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and to, all of his glo- and to him and all of his glory. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.